Let's open our Bibles up together to Revelation chapter 18. We came through all of chapter 17 last time, and we'll endeavor to get through all of 18 this time. It is 24 verses, so it's a little more than we've been doing lately, but we're going to make it work. Revelation 17 and 18 are what we would call parenthetical. And chapter 16, so going back to 16, that detailed the bowl judgments, the bowls of God's wrath that were poured out onto the the unbelieving world. And that series of judgments wraps up the tribulation period. Now, chapter 19, so skipping ahead through 17 and 18, chapter 19 details Christ's glorious appearing, his second coming, as we would call it. But in chapters 17 and 18, they're parenthetical. So they don't follow the chronology. Rather, they're a look back at something happening towards the end of the tribulation, and we get a zoomed-in, detailed view on the judgment that's coming to Babylon. And Babylon is the second most mentioned city by name in the Bible, outdone only by Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is mentioned most in the Bible. Babylon is in the second place. There are over 300 references to Babylon in the scripture. It's, it's very well documented. And these two chapters of 17 and 18 detail the judgment of religious Babylon and the commercial aspects of Babylon, respectively. And some will tend to believe that the religious and commercial Babylons are two separate cities or separate entities. I think it's unnecessary to make this talk about two cities. Um, If you're familiar with Occam's Razor, you know, you don't invoke entities that aren't necessary for the explanation. And the biblical account seems to refer to only one city. And there's a little piece of evidence for that that I'll actually detail later. Um, But you can just read through those six chapters that I had mentioned before on the fall of Babylon. It all seems to be talking about this one place, one city in the land of Shinar. Um, The ancient Roman Empire was organized this way with a religious and political slash economic center in one. And so you had the Caesar, who was the king, basically, the political ruler, but he was also the high priest of their pagan religion. He, he functioned in both roles. And the Vatican is set up this way with the Pope as the head of the Catholic Church and the head of state. So this two-in-one, two aspects to one city, is not something foreign to us. At least it shouldn't be. So Babylon here has two aspects, the religious aspect of it detailed in 17, the political slash economic aspect of it detailed in chapter 18. And in chapter 17, we saw the judgment on that harlot of Babylon. That woman riding the beast represented the city of Babylon. She rose to prominence on the back of the beast. She was riding the beast. The woman is not the beast itself. 
But the beast and his 10 kings turn on the woman. And it says that they burn her with fire. And we'll also look at that again today. Basically, they throw her yoke off of them. And this is when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped as God. And I expect this to come about at the, the middle of the tribulation. This is the abomination of desolation. And it's interesting to note that God used evil people to accomplish his purpose there. You know, the Antichrist and his Ten King Federation, those are not good guys. They're evil, evil people. But the end of chapter 17, it says that God used them to accomplish his purpose. And that's what we're seeing all throughout Revelation. This is calculated on God's part. This is not a willy-nilly thing that's just happening. And this is kind of what Habakkuk found unsettling. The fact that God used wicked people to judge seemingly good people. And in Habakkuk's case, God used the Babylonians to judge God's people, Jerusalem. In chapter 18, we'll see the judgment and fall of the great commercial center of Babylon. Verses 1 through 8 fill in some gaps for us concerning this economic system, and those verses contain God's call to his people to come out of this system, Babylon. In verses 9 through 20, we get to see how four different groups of people react to Babylon's destruction. Three of those groups come from within Babylon, or within the world, more accurately. The last comes from outside of the Babylonian system. We'll look at that. And when this destruction comes onto Babylon, there's a certain finality to it. There's a very definite end to the city. And verses 21 through 24 emphasize the finality of this judgment. Let's begin by reading through verses 1 through 8. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from, from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will see no sorrow. Therefore, Her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, 
for strong is the Lord God who judges her. In verse 1, it starts with, after these things. And this phrase should be fairly familiar to us by now. It's been used a couple other times in Revelation. The Greek for this is metatauta, and this simply means hereafter, or after what just occurred. So in this case, John is saying, after the vision of the woman and the beast came this angel out of heaven. Another angel, that is alos agalos, that means another angel of the same kind as the last. That means that this is not Christ, this is a created being. Having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Now, when you think of the, the earth being illuminated with glory, we tend to think of Christ um, for good reason. But this is not him. This is a very powerful angel that he has given authority and power. Having great authority, exousia, power, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now, this cry of the angel here is very similar to what we saw in Revelation 14.8. There, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Could this be the same angel? Yes, it could be. We're not sure. Um, It could be a different angel with the same message. could be the same angel with the same message. He continues, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. That's a strange phrase. That's a strange thing to put together. Um, If you're familiar with the principle of expositional constancy, these birds are going to represent ministers of Satan. And the principle of expositional constancy is just a fancy word, fancy term, to say that the Holy Spirit tends to use idioms in similar ways throughout the Scripture. There is a consistency to the way that idioms are used. And these birds are talked about in other places in Scripture. That helps us understand what they're meaning here. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus is going through these kingdom parables. And Jesus uses birds in a couple of these parables. And in one of them, he explains what the birds represent. In the parable of the sower, he explains that the birds are the wicked one. They're the ministers of Satan. And if we take the birds in Revelation 18.2 this morning to be ministers of Satan, it seems to fit right in with this list of demons, foul spirits, and hated birds, ministers of Satan. So that works well with this text. And there seems to be something about Babylon that's containing 
these demons, foul spirits, and unclean birds. They seem to be confined to the city's locality. And it's, it's a dwelling place. It says it's a prison and a cage to these entities. And the words prison and cage there are the same word in the Greek. We know that even spiritual beings can be confined to certain geographical localities because we see it multiple times in Scripture. We saw the Prince of Persia in Daniel 10. And if you'll pay attention in that passage, you'll notice that this is not a man that's being referred to as the Prince of Persia. It says that he fought against an angel who was trying to deliver a prophetic message to Daniel. And this Prince of Persia held that angel back for three weeks. We know that one angel in one night destroyed thousands of soldiers, humans. One man cannot stand up to an angel. So this prince of Persia is evidently a chief principality over the region of Persia and a demonic sort of entity. Even back in Revelation 9, which we just came through a number of weeks ago, during the sixth trumpet judgment, we hear a voice instructing an angel to, quote, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So this Euphrates River is also has an element of confinement to it. God has kept those angels there for just that moment. Those four angels had been bound at the Euphrates River. There's a locality to it. So there may be some degree to which Babylon actually contains these unclean spirits. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Verse 3 says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. All the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The nations of the world have shared in this Babylonian system's spiritual fornication, and that is her idolatry. She has intoxicated them with her religious system and now is intoxicating them with her greed and materialistic tendencies. And the materialistic tendencies is what this whole chapter revolves around. This commercial center, this center of great wealth and opulence. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And there seems to be this thought among the rulers of the nations that if they get in good with Babylon, their power and their wealth will increase because of it. Wealth is the big deal here. And it's the focus of these kings, merchants, and sailors that we'll deal with later. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Um, This isn't just a provisional wealth. This isn't just 
them having enough to take care of themselves and their family and live a good lifestyle. This is way over the top. This is an abundance of luxury. We're talking gold leaf on their filet mignon, wearing a bracelet that costs more than I make in a year, on their private yacht with their servants, that kind of wealth. It's a decadence. See, money is a tricky thing, and it's talked about a lot in Scripture. So thankfully, we have a good way to look at money, but it's actually necessary for a decent quality of life. If you don't have money, you're not going to live comfortably. But when it's given too high a priority in our lives, it becomes our master, becomes our God. And money is a wonderful servant, but a very cruel master. It should be a tool that we use, not something that runs the entirety of our life. The kings and merchants here are mastered by their money. And I'm sure that they can take careful calculations of their businesses, profits, and losses. But it seems that they've failed to account for the value of their own souls when choosing to follow after mammon, wealth. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. My people. Who's speaking now? God. God is calling his people. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago in chapter 17 that there are these verses that call God's people out of Babylon. We've got a problem if Babylon is America, because we shouldn't be here. However, I think that there, is, there are many reasons why Babylon is not representative of America. Um, I went over several of those in chapter 17. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. In its prophetic context, John is hearing this voice from heaven. It's God's voice, and we can tell because he calls them his people. So what are we to do with this? Are we off the hook because we're not living in physical Babylon? I don't know. I've already said that I don't believe America is Babylon, but I think we still need to pay attention to this. Because Babylon in Scripture is not only representative of a physical city, which it is, it's also the system that runs the world in the last days. The greedy materialistic system is the economic system of Babylon. It's a system of greed and materialism. The world is telling you that you need more stuff. And it seems that we're constantly in a battle with our desire to acquire. And that's what we should be coming out of. Coming out of this need 
for stuff. We're not totally off the hook because we don't live in the city of Babylon. Because the system of Babylon is already at work in the world and in our nation. I mean, just look around. Be careful where your affections lie. Where your treasures lie, there your heart will be also. So yes, take heed to this. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. This word for reached is interesting. It means to glue or to stick. And the idea here is that her iniquities are being stacked up, glued and stuck to one another. And that stacking of her iniquities reaches all the way to heaven. And this seems to be a kind of loose allusion to the Tower of Babel. That tower in the the plain of Shinar, when the the people tried to reach to heaven. Genesis 11 actually says that they tried to build a tower, quote, whose top was in the heavens. Maybe a loose allusion to that. And God has remembered her iniquities. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that God didn't choose to remember my iniquities. This is a different group of people that we're talking about. These are not the redeemed. These are the evil people who do not accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. God says that he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I'm also glad that he didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because you can actually measure the distance between the north and south. You can't measure east from west. There is a north and a south pole. There's no east and west pole. That is an immeasurable distance. Isaiah 43, 25 also says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That blot out means completely obliterate your transgressions, and I will not remember your sins. Now, not that God forgets our sins because he knows everything, but he chooses not to remember them. And there is a difference there. He chooses not to remember our sins. Now, of course, this in Revelation is to those who are not repentant of their sins, who do not turn to Jesus as the only way of reconciliation with God. Verse 6. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in that same measure, give her torment and sorrow. This is definitely not what you want God saying about you, you know. Render to her just as she rendered to you. Every, all through here, double, double, 
sorrow, torment, double. It's not a good equation here. Now the second part of verse 7 is interesting because it gives us an insight into the condition of this woman's heart. The heart of the Babylonian system. This is the attitude at the center of it. And this is actually quoted from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 47. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will see no sorrow. On the surface, this seems to be a pretty strange thing to boast about. But I think what's really going on here is a little bit deeper. It looks like this harlot is deliberately contrasting herself to the woman Israel, to God's chosen people, who is presented in the scripture as widowed and divorced. There is an intentional contrast here. I've got a graphic with some of the distinctions between these two women. And this is not exhaustive, but just something to get you going. We'll leave it up there for a couple minutes for you. In chapter 12 of Revelation, you met a woman that we identified as Israel. And in chapters 17 and 18, we meet this woman identified as Mystery Babylon. She has that name emblazoned across her forehead. And there are several parallels between these two women that are worth looking into. And I won't go too far into them, um, but those are there for you if you're interested. In Isaiah 47, 8, this woman says, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. There's a haughty attitude here. And the same attitude is echoed in Zephaniah 2.15. Again, talking about the woman of Babylon. She says, I am it, and there is none besides me. This attitude sets her up for a fall. She is exalted in her own mind, but will be humbled by God. And this is the opposite of the mind of Christ. Remember Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted by God. This woman exalts herself and will be humbled by God. Philippians 2 says, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, therefore implies causation. So since he humbled himself, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This mind of Christ is just the opposite of the mind of Babylon. And God administers the just reward for each of these attitudes. And in verse 8, 
we come to a therefore. Just like we did in Philippians 2, that therefore implies causation. So since that woman had this haughty attitude, therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now here is one distinction that I want to draw between the Babylonian religious system and the Babylonian economic system. Their fate is similar. They're both burned with fire, but they have different sources of judgment. The religious system is burned by the Ten Kings. In verse 16 of chapter 17, we see that meted out. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, that is the religious system of Babylon, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So the ten kings actually burn the woman, the religious system, with fire. There's a different agent of judgment on the economic system of Babylon. It says, strong is the Lord God who judges her. And he does it with fire too. She will utterly be, she will be utterly burned with fire. So her judgment seems to come directly from God. And this is important, and we'll see why. It's also compared to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know was a supernatural fire from heaven. That'll be important as well. There are folks who see the destruction of Babylon being meted out with nuclear weapons. They, they see nuclear weapons talked about here. Um, there are certainly some undertones to this text that would lead us to think that. Like verses 9 and 10 telling us that the kings of the earth stand at a distance for fear of her torment. Is that an understanding of nuclear fallout, of radiation? Are they wanting to stand back because they think that they'll be affected by that radiation? I don't know. The speed at which Babylon is wiped out could also be seen as evidence for the use of some kind of nuclear weapon. It says that in one hour, Babylon will come to nothing. It will be a very quick destruction. But the biggest reason I would tend to question this line of thinking is the fact that judgment seems to come from God very personally. It doesn't seem that he uses another agent in this judgment. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. He didn't need nuclear weapons to bring fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he certainly doesn't need them now. But it also seems that Babylon isn't going to have many, if any, earthly enemies. Because all the kings of the earth have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
They're all bought into this system. All the kings of the world, who is left to bring war or destruction against her on earth? The whole world is kind of hers. And this one world type of government under Antichrist is backing Babylon. And Babylon is profiting off of all of this. So, so are the kings of the world, the merchants of the world. They're profiting off of Babylon. So why would they turn and destroy their cash cow? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I tend to think that this judgment comes directly from God in some kind of a supernatural way. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So it's sudden. Now, starting in verse 9, we're going to see how these different groups of people react to the utter destruction of Babylon. And I'll give you a little heads up. The first three groups will mourn and lament for her destruction. The fourth group rejoices. And we'll see who that includes a little bit later. This first group in, this first group in view are the kings of the earth. And we would see these as the political rulers the presidents, the magistrates, maybe Congress, the the kings of the earth. What are they concerned about? Seems to be they're concerned about the money and the influence that they received from Babylon, who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her. They're kind of mooching off of Babylon. All these kings know that that's where the richest is. They're not really concerned about the people who died during Babylon's destruction, just the money. In verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. This is the second group of people, the merchants. They react very similarly to the kings. And we'll see a list of 28 imports that Babylon, of Babylon, that contributed to these merchants' rise in economic superiority. So Babylon buys all of these things from these merchants. And these merchants are the powerful money makers of the last days. And oftentimes, these industry barons are actually more powerful than the kings. And we see that even today. The politicians tend to follow the money. Uh, They bend to the political agenda of those funding their campaigns. And that's just how it works. So these merchants are probably the real power brokers of this time period. Let's read through verses 11 through 16. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Notice the reason that they're weeping and mourning. And the merchandise is, 
merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. So much the same as the king's, These merchants are weeping and mourning over Babylon, but not because of the death toll. Verse 11 told us why, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Of course, they're mourning the loss of their revenue. And this list of merchandise is not meant to be exhaustive necessarily, but representative. Now, please don't misunderstand me when I say that this list is representative, because that doesn't mean that it's to be allegorized. These are literal traded goods in the city, but the specific goods mentioned tend to represent the whole category in which they belong. For example, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls. That represents the whole category of precious metals and jewels. And there are 28 goods listed in this list. 28 is 7 times 4. 7 being the number of completion, 4 being the number of the earth. So that's derived from like the four cardinal directions, uh, the four seasons. Um, 4 is tends to to be seen as a number of the earth. So in this list, these are all the desires, a complete list of desires of the world. So we have this idea of completeness um, and representation here. Fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, represent decadent and haughty clothing. All of this is going to be wiped out in this destruction. Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble. These all represent opulent and expensive building materials for use in the city, and marble being the most costly of that list. And this phrase that we see, every kind of object of blank, is broad enough to cover all types of furniture, housing, construction, ornamentation, and other uses of all these materials. And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil. These are all representative of 
personal luxury items like spices, perfumes, ointments, etc. And if you're paying close attention there, you'll notice oil is listed twice. In the New King James, it says fragrant oil and frankincense, then wine and oil. What's up with that? The fragrant oil is speaking of perfumes and anointing oil. Like they would anoint a wound with oil in these days, um, a.k.a. an ointment. The second instance, it just says oil. And these two references to oil use different Greek words. Both words can mean oil that was used for anointing, but why would that be included twice using different words? John is receiving this list of goods in his own language at the end of the first century. But the vision here refers to the last days in our present age, hundreds of years in the future. I would propose that this second reference to oil is representative of petroleum-based products. And this is the Holy Spirit's way of communicating that. If you remember back in the seal judgments, back in chapter 6, the rider of the black horse brought inflation with him. But the oil and the wine were not affected. And if you remember, those are luxury goods. We talked about that back in chapter 6. So the luxury goods were not affected by that inflation. Now we have wine and oil, again mentioned in a list of goods. The wine is representative of the entire class of intoxicating drinks, alcohol. Oil, I say here, is petroleum. Now, do your own homework there. See what you think. Fine flour and wheat. This is the only instance of this word translated as fine flour in the New Testament. It's a very specific word, and this is believed to be the highest grade of wheat flour that was available to them. This term wheat can be translated corn as well as wheat. And this can be seen to represent all manner of agricultural products, um, at least crops. Then it says cattle and sheep, horses and chariots. So not only crops, but the entire gamut of agricultural products, like livestock, are included in this list. And (laughs) this word for chariots specifically refers to four-wheeled chariots not the two-wheeled chariots that they would use for war. But the four-wheeled chariots tended to be used for pleasure and luxury. Sometimes we get too caught up in our four-wheeled chariots. That's in there. The bodies and souls of men. This is one that we want to read straight over. You know, we don't want to look at this too close, but it really emphasizes the evil in that system. Your King James Bible will say slaves 
and souls of men. The vast majority of the usages of this word soma is translated as body. There's actually only one where it's translated as slave. But the idea is the same. The bodies of men and women are traded as a commodity. This is a clear reference to human trafficking. And unfortunately, this is one of the biggest problems and one of the biggest sources of revenue in the world today. And souls of men, that is anthropos, that's men and women, humans. The souls are what the enemy is really after. They don't care as much about the body. They'll use the body as a means to an end to get to the soul. But the soul is what it's all about. The body fades away, but one soul can influence an eternity. Think about it. Think about the gravity of saving or condemning one soul. For that person, it's an eternity that we're talking about. The whole Babylonian system is set up by Satan to deceive the nations and keep their souls from spending an eternity with Christ, the Redeemer. It's what this whole thing's about, the souls of men. And that caps off the list of goods traded in Babylon. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. So everything the merchants have desired has been taken from them with the destruction of this system. All the rich things the world has to offer them have been stripped away. It makes you really consider where you're putting your time and effort into. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. So these guys are also standing at a distance. And it's unclear whether, you know, this is a technology statement. It could be they're in their place all over the world watching this through satellite, through television. Are they watching the smoke of Babylon ascend? from their own palace or from the White House, who knows? Or are they en route to Armageddon when this happens? And over the plane, they actually see the smoke or a huge mushroom cloud ascending from Babylon. Because we know that they probably are all en route to the plains of Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel that place of Armageddon, where all the kings of the earth congregate to make war against God. They're probably en route. They may not be watching over the television. They may be watching the smoke rise in person. Weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen purple and scarlet, and adorned with the gold and precious stones and pearls. So apparently, that great city was actually adorned like the harlot 
in John's vision in chapter 17. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So this language in Revelation 17.4 must be more than just symbolic. Because here it says, that great city looked like this. It was adorned, clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, gold, precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, our third group of people, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. The shipmasters are the last group that bewail Babylon's destruction. These are the barons of the shipping industry that will be so prolific in these last days, carting around all of these goods that have made Babylon wealthy and have made those merchants wealthy. So with all this commerce and trade also comes the shipping companies, the ones that profit off of all of that trade. Those companies and their owners become extremely wealthy. And there are some commentators who propose that this phrase, all those who travel by ship, could also refer to pilots of aircraft or conductors of trains. And people who ship that way, we know that that's more prevalent now for most things than shipping by sea. And they say that the language is such that it doesn't exclude captains of other vessels. So we could lump ships, planes, trains all together in this. And this seems to be true, but there are also very overt references to the sea and to shipmasters, captains of ships. So it probably does include pilots pilots of planes and trains. Try saying that 10 times fast. But it definitely doesn't exclude ship captains. So they're all lumped into this category of shipmasters. So what does this mean? It means that the future city of Babylon will be a leader in shipping and exports with a functional port in or near the city. And of course, Rome one of the top contenders for this position of Babylon, Rome sits on the coast of Italy. So it would easily fulfill this criteria for the future city of Babylon. It has easy access to ports. I tend to think that Babylon is going to be rebuilt in its historical site on the Euphrates River. Do we have a problem there? No port. No way to get ships in and out but by the Euphrates And there's no way that the commerce of the world can be channeled through that river. 
In 331 BC, Alexander the Great entered the city and was welcomed by the Babylonians as its new king. Nine years later, he planned extensive renovations for the city, which included a port for 1,000 warships. So Alexander the Great actually planned on making a port for his new capital of Babylon. It could be done then. There's no doubt with our technology and dredging that we could dredge out the marshlands that flow into the Persian Gulf down at the southeast of the city. The city wasn't destroyed by the Persians, but it serves as the capital two centuries later during Alexander the Great's reign. So those who want to say that this destruction of Babylon has already been meted out, they can be pretty well dismissed because this has not happened. Not, uh, not by a long shot. So when Alexander died, his empire was divided between four of his generals. Uh, Seleucus was one of them, and he took the land from Syria all the way to India. Seleucus didn't share Alexander's vision for rebuilding Babylon, for renovating it. So what Seleucus did, he built a new city. He built it on the banks of the Tigris River. You know, you got the Euphrates to the south, Tigris to the top. Mesopotamia means the land between the two rivers. Um, When Seleucus took over, he built Seleucia, named it after himself, of course. That's that new city on the Tigris River. And this new city started to boom. And that city's presence expedited the decline of Babylon. Up until 75 AD, merchants were still trying to eke out a living in the city of Babylon. But finally, in 199 AD, Septimus Severus reported that Babylon was officially deserted. And fast forward to the 19th century, Robert Kadui did some excavations in that area, and he was able to hire locals, which means that more people had actually moved back in. There were about 10,000 inhabitants in Hila, Iraq, and that's the city that's very close to the ancient side of Babylon. Now today, there's some 500,000 in the city of Hila, which is right there in Babylon. Why do I take you through all of that? Because the destruction prophesied on Babylon has not yet come. It slowly faded away out of importance, and it's slowly coming back into importance. Saddam Hussein started a project rebuilding Babylon. Isaiah 13.20 says of Babylon, It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. It's becoming settled again. This is not the fulfillment of that. Jeremiah 51.26 also says of Babylon, They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation. So once this prophesied destruction takes place, there won't be a stone left of its old building material. 
they have been rebuilding it with its old building material. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah likened Babylon's future judgment to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Its judgment was sudden and final and using fire. All of that to say that, guess what? The doom of Babylon has not yet occurred. The fading away of that ancient city into second century obscurity is not the sudden and traumatic judgment that has been pronounced against it in Scripture. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. I want you to turn with me. Keep, keep the thumb in Revelation. Turn with me to Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. If you're reading through the book of Zechariah, you'll find this very strange and seemingly out-of-place vision in chapter 5. And this vision of, is of a woman in an ephah. An ephah was the standard commercial measurement roughly equivalent to the bushel of today. So let's look at this vision in Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. Verse 5 starts, remember this is a vision, it's weird. So bear with me. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is an ephah that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. So already we have a strange vision. There's this basket pictured. It's a commercial, commercial measurement. And there's this woman. And the angel says, this is wickedness, referring to the woman. So the woman, which is personified wickedness, is put in the commercial measurement, the basket. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. So she can't get out now. This lead cover was the weight of a talent, about 100 pounds. She's sealed in there. Then I raised my eyes and looked. And there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So now we've got this basket with the woman sealed inside it. Two other women come flying in on the wings of storks. A stork is an unclean bird in the Old Testament. Okay, There's an uncleanness about these two women. They're not angels. Angels are always male. These are women. They take the basket, and it says that they lifted it up between earth and heaven. So they started flying with it in the air. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? Ah, that's the perfect question to ask, because look at the angel's reply. And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, 
When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. So where are they going? Shinar. Genesis 11.2 says that when the people traveled from the east, um, they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. If Babylon is the city, Shinar is the county. It's this greater area where Babylon sits. And that's where they built the Tower of Babel. All of that takes place in Babylon in the the land of Shinar. Where are they going to set this wicked woman that is contained in a commercial measure? In the land of Shinar. It says, on its own base. That is, its cradle. Where it originated. That is very telling to us. This woman, I propose to you it's Babylon, will be set there on her own base, where she came from. Not in Italy, but in Shinar. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets. I'm sorry, we're back in Revelation now. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. This is the fourth group of people. And this group of people is not engaged in the Babylonian system. These are removed from the system. What are they to do? It says rejoice. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over the fact that Babylon has finally reached her end. It was really through this Babylonian system that the martyrs for Christ were killed. And that is all throughout history. And this brings us to this final group's reaction. This group is made up of saints, apostles, and prophets. This seems to include us. The New King James enumerates two classes here. It says holy apostles and prophets, but the Greek can be read as saints, apostles, and prophets. The word translated holy in the New King James is the same word that's also translated as saints. So that may be the more correct reading of the original Greek. But even if that doesn't cover us, the fact that this voice is calling heaven to rejoice would include us. That's where we would be at this time. Rejoice over her, O heaven. That includes everyone in heaven. And you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Look at the contrast here. While the kings, merchants, and shipmasters of the whole world are weeping and lamenting the fall of Babylon, heaven will be rejoicing at this doom that's finally come on her enemy. This system that has caused a multitude of sorrows and has drug many souls to perdition. Verse 21, I promise this will be quick. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone 
and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon will be thrown down and shall not be found any more. Many scholars and commentators think that Babylon will be covered up with water after her final judgment of fire. And the end of this is so that she is remembered no more. And this verse, along with a couple others, is what they build that view from. I think this view is more than plausible. I think it's very likely. This action would have to follow at least a few days, maybe a number of weeks, after Babylon's burning. And that would give it at least enough time between the burning and the flooding for wild animals and demons to make their habitation, as prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah, also John in Revelation. This great millstone will sink to the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again, as will Babylon. Mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. A similar fate is described at the end of the book of Jeremiah, which seems to bolster this view. It's Jeremiah 51, 63, and 64. It says, Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. So again, this sinking It's possible that an aftershock of that great earthquake of the last bowl judgment will cause the whole Mesopotamian plain to kind of drop down into a chasm. When that happens, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers from the north will start to flood it, and the Persian Gulf from the south will start to flood it. Jeremiah also prophesies of Babylon how Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. It's pretty telling. That's Jeremiah 51, verses 41 and 42. So, the judgment of Babylon can be summed up in darkness, demons, fire, and flood. Darkness, demons, fire, and flood. That is the judgment of Babylon. Verse 22, the sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. So again, we're seeing a representative list that, and this piece specifically stands for any kind of joyous music. Musicians would be seen as singers, flutists for wind instruments, trumpeters for that kind of instrument, what is it called? Brass? Brass. And harpists, stringed instruments. So we see a a whole gamut of these. Also in another prophecy, don't remember exactly where, it lists a similar list in a similar context, but it includes drums. So they're not found here, but that is included in another list. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. 
During its rebuilding, Babylon will attract a great number of craftsmen, construction workers, trade workers that will all pitch in to rebuilding this great city into a kind of glory that it had never seen before. Um, And these guys will be attracted by the promise of high wages, wealth, a good gig, you know, and this will all come to a screeching halt when this destruction is meted out. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The crippling effects of the bowl judgments will likely render the power grid unusable. You'll no longer be able to get electricity. Um, You can't cool the hydroelectric generators because there's no water. And the only light in the city will probably come from candles. But not even the light of candles will be seen after this judgment. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. That's not to say that marriage was especially sacred to these people, but it would be used as a means of political and economic gain. You know, the the families of different um, powerful nations, powerful people groups coming together in marriage, but no more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. This word sorcery may be familiar to you. It's pharmakia. That's where we get our word pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, all of that. It's the use of drugs or hallucinogens. And uh, it, it may be interesting or maybe slightly concerning to you that the top revenue producer in the world is the sale of arms, of weapons. The second is the sale of illegal drugs. The third is the sale of legal drugs. There you go. Pharmakia, drugs, sorcery, it's called here. You know, we see too many people today involved in the occult, and um, it just goes without saying that most of them don't get involved in that evil spiritual side of things by drawing a pentagram in their living room and having seances. They get involved by the use of drugs, this pharmakia, and it's strictly forbidden in scripture. For by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. Seems to be something to do with drugs, you know, this reason why all the nations were deceived. You know, I I can't tell you exactly what that is, but nevertheless, provocative. Verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. And this just reiterates that this system is responsible for the martyrdom of Christians. In her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. That wraps up chapter 18. Next week, we get into the good stuff. The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. This is what I've been waiting for. 
have we been doing this about six months now? Or a little over? Seven or eight months? This is where it all comes together. And I am very excited to get into chapter 19. We can, for the most part, leave this Babylon stuff behind us and get on to Jesus Christ. And that is it for this morning. And let's wrap up in a word of prayer. Thank you.